morning we continue with our study in the book of Ephesians, page 1801, chapter 6, as we will conclude this portion of what is described as the armor of God. I'm going to read the passage from verse 10, and we will look at part 2 of verse 17 today, as we look at this last piece called the sword of the Spirit. And many will call it the armor of God, the sixth piece, but this is also significant because this is a weapon. This is a weapon that we have. Hear the word of God, chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet, with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. No surprise, as we have noted, Christian, you find yourself in a spiritual war, a spiritual warfare. Now in war... Strategies and can be varied in their complexities. Opponents may have many different types of strategies in their quest to win a war. But there's one known as the scorched earth tactic. And this is like this. This is what this is about. If you can destroy an opponent's most valuable commodities and destroy their weaponry, you will have a great chance of succeeding in winning a war. For an example, if Army A knows that Army B has something, a weapon, that Army A will never be able to defeat, they will try to stop it from happening. They will try to destroy the weapon before they get out to the battlefield. And that is a wise strategy. Now, Christian, your opponent the devil has tried to do that repetitively. And he's tried to do that with one of your strongest weapons, one of your most trusted weapons, something he has no chance in ever defeating, and that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see, the devil has attacked the Word of God throughout history. Because he knows he cannot defeat God's word. He's tried to eradicate it. And as we fight this flesh and blood battle, it's a spiritual battle. But make no mistake. You see, the spiritual element to this battle does manifest itself in the natural and material world. You see, Satan does influence people. He does influence governments. He does influence people to do his bidding. And he's come against the Bible numerous times. 
And the Bible has many enemies and always has. From the satanic spirits of this age, who I would feel empower others to try to destroy God's truth, which is the Bible. One such person was ruler Diocletian. Now, he was a ruler that preceded Constantine, and Eusebius, the historian, says this, quote, Royal edicts were published everywhere, commanding that churches be leveled to the ground and the scriptures be destroyed by fire. That comes from Eusebius Church History, Book 8, Chapter 1. That's silly. That's foolish. Because Jesus has told us, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But yet they come against the scriptures and try to destroy it by fire. Diocletian said this. He went on to say that if he had one copy of scripture, that anyone who had at least one copy of the scriptures and did not surrender it to be burned, if it were discovered, he would be killed. Furthermore, if any other should know of one who had a copy of the scriptures and did not report it, they would be killed as well. And during this time, many copies of the Bible, God's truth, the word of God, were burned. Now, after this edict had been enforced for two years, Diocletian boasted this, I have completely exterminated the Christian writings from the face of the earth. This is what Harry Rimmer of Seven Wonders of the World wrote on page 15. But had he completely destroyed it? No, not in the least. Now, the Bible has had many enemies, and one such one you need to know about is the man by the name of Voltaire. Who was this man? A French infidel who died in 1778, and he also made his attempt to destroy the Bible. He boldly made the prediction that within 100 years, the Bible and Christianity would have been swept from existence into oblivion. But Voltaire's efforts and his bold prophecy failed as miserably as did those of his unbelieving predecessors. In fact, within 100 years, the very printing press upon which Voltaire had printed his infidel literature was being used to print copies of the Bible. And afterward, the very house which Voltaire had lived in was literally stacked with Bibles prepared by the Geneva Bible Society. Voltaire failed. Satan failed as well. But now, why would Satan have such an attack against God's word? Why would, say, why would these men come against the word of God? Because God's word is truth. And God's word is truth. And what is Satan? He is the father of lies. Satan hates truth. Understand something. He hates God. He hates the church. He hates God's word. He hates truth. He's the father of lies. He's also called the devil and Satan, a deceiver of the whole world. Revelation 12, 9. He hates the spirit of truth. He hates the son, the way, and the truth. Jesus Christ as well. Now, Satan now knows that he cannot eradicate the word of God, I believe. So what does he do? He tries to twist it. He tries to manipulate it. He tries to coerce and pervert God's word and distort it with the intent to persuade people by deception. He is a master at deception. We must understand he does have power. He's a master at deception. For instance, those without the spirit of truth. What does he do? He's the God of this age. 
Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians 4.4. And he blinds eyes of unbelievers. Jesus called him the ruler of this age that will soon be cast out. Don't underestimate his deception. The whole world lies under his sway. 1 John 5.19. Meaning the whole world system. The anti-God system. The spirit of this age. That Paul tells us in Galatians 1.4. He's also the prince and power of the air. But Christian... You're not part of that system. You're not part of that spirit. Understand, you've been rescued. You've been transferred out of that wicked, evil age. And Jesus Christ gave himself for your sins. And he might deliver us, not just from your sins, from this present evil age, according to the will of God the Father. Galatians 1.4 Yet we are free, but yet we must use this weapon, the sword of the spirit, to fight our battles here on this side of eternity till the Lord comes. Now, how do we fight? As we have noticed, we stand strong. We stand firm in God's strength, which is the armor of God. The armor provides protection. The scriptures give us a strategy. And there's a power to it for us. Now, we see the influence of the Roman soldier that Paul is basing this on. But don't miss something very significant. I believe, as many Bible commentators believe, Paul has his eyes fixed in the Old Testament, particularly the book of Isaiah. For example, the weapons of spiritual warfare that Paul's drawing on here um, come from many phrases and passages that are representative of Christ in the Old Testament, the coming Messiah, the coming Redeemer. Paul makes this connection with the armor with Christ. For example, the prophet Isaiah describes Jesus in 11.1, Isaiah 11.1, a rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch that grows out of his roots. And in 11.5, we see righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and the faithfulness of the belt of his waist. And Isaiah describes the warrior as we looked at last week. In Isaiah 59.17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he was clad with zeal as a cloak. There is a Redeemer who will come, and he has come out of Zion. And Christ is your armor. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your armor. We need to put on his truth as our belt. We need to put on his righteousness to stand against these accusations from our enemy. We need to put on the helmet of salvation. We need the faith to protect us. We need our feet to be prepared to carry his gospel to the ends of the earth. But we need to take up today the sword of the spirit. Now, swords are represented in many ways in the Old Testament. Even anew for that matter. Many different ways, but particularly for battle. Joshua's army would have swords. They would fight with swords. When Goliath fell, David took his sword. But when it comes to sword and judgment, I want to make this connection. In both the Old and New Testament, when we see a sword, from God's perspective, it speaks of a final judgment against evil. For example, Isaiah again, 49.2, made my mouth like a sharpened sword. And Isaiah 11.4 it says this, striking the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. 
Jesus Christ will come again, as we see in the book of Revelation 19.15, coming out of his mouth a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. Understand something about the sword. The sword is mighty. God is mighty. And also Isaiah 27, very interesting scripture, speaks of, In that day the Lord, with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing ser serpent. Leviathan, that twisted serpent. He will slay the reptile that is the sea. Now, Leviathan is representative of the dragon. And according to the Reformation Study Bible, this Old Testament image employs the image to denote evil, autocratic powers. You may say tyrannical anti-God powers. A promise of God to the people of God that the Lord will punish all such human expressions of power that rebel against God and resistance to his kingdom. So we know by the sword, God will make everything crooked straight and he will judge Satan and evil. But as for us, for now, we too have a sword to contend with. This is the soldier's only weapon. In terms of offensive, we have looked thus far at all defensive pieces that protect us from Satan's schemes and his fiery darts. But what we see now is an offensive weapon as well. And understand something. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is infinitely more powerful than anything Satan is going to throw at you. For example, Hebrews 4.12, speaking of the Word of God, for the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The sword of the Spirit will make you strong. The sword of the Spirit will give you wisdom and discernment to understand these schemes. Now we see the last piece can be considered a weapon. Now typical of the Roman soldier, as Paul has in mind, he has a very uh, short blade, easy to draw, quick in combat. Quick in combat. Maybe somewhere in the area of 6 to 12 inches long. And it defensively fends off attacks and offensively helps destroy Satan's strategy. The enemy's strategy for the Roman, for us, it is Satan. So, in the same way God's word helps us in these spiritual attacks, we must come to some realization about God's word. The sword of the spirit is different than words we converse with. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is different than human, natural words that we speak. Now, this Word has power. And speaking regarding the Word of God, we must understand. What about the Word that's different than the words I will speak after this in my own natural strength? What's different about it? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Understand the sword of the Spirit. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's breathed out by God. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, inspired by God. Very important scripture. 2 Peter 2, 
1, 20 to 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This has been given to us by God. It's inspired by God. Now, when we look at the Word, the Word, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, there are typically two words to denote the Word. There is logos, and there is another one called rhema. So, now logos means word when it's used of all of Scripture. And it refers to the written word, all of the Bible. The entirety of the Scripture is logos. That's not the word here that Paul used. Paul's using this word rhema. Rhema doesn't refer to the entirety of the word, but it's speaking about individual verses. It's speaking about tip passages and applying the passages in specific situations. By using the word rhema, it's very possible, I believe, others do as well. I think there is some, some significance to this. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He's using the word here, rhema, to show us that this is the sword of the Spirit. And with the rhema word, we speak to the devil's attack individually in all situations. It's kind of like we can wield it quickly in battle. It's, it's kind of chapter and verse at our disposal, which we can thrust and force into the enemy's attack. Now, there are many different words and we have at our disposal in the scriptures. We cannot add to it. We cannot create. We just can use it in obedience as it is sufficient to destroy Satan's schemes. It is. It is sufficient. We're taking up the sword to fight evil in all areas of, of life, in our minds, in our hearts, in all areas. But what we want to talk about, I'm going to focus today, is one area in particular. We've spoke about fiery darts, right? We've spoke about doubt, accusations. I want to talk today about the fiery dart of temptation. The fiery dart of temptation. Now, we speak about temptation in the New Testament. Temptation can mean simply a test. A test that God is in all your temptations, by the way. A couple of things we're going to know about temptation. But a Nelson's Bible Dictionary, which I believe gives a very good definition. With an enticement that we are going to look at today, is an enticement or invitation to sin with the implied promise of a greater good to be derived from following the way of disobedience. I'll read it one more time. The definition for temptation, an enticement or invitation to sin with the implied promise of a greater good to be derived from following the way of disobedience. Now, there are certain patterns throughout Scripture that we see are repeated when it comes to temptation. We see things in the garden that we see in everyday life. But I'm not going to go through everything in the garden. We've done that in the past. One of the things I want to make notice of you is, however he does it, Satan sometimes can make us dissatisfied with what God has provided for us. Somehow. Somehow, particularly, there are times when we are dissatisfied with what God has given, like in the garden, with his provision, and therefore we seek some other provision. The sword of the Spirit enables us to recognize that and refute that. 
That's what the sword of the Spirit does for us. Now, when it comes to temptation, no surprise, it's, he's going to come at you particularly in three ways. The temptation will come from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or from the pride of life. And do know that Satan will tempt you. But know this as well. God will always provide a means of escape, for there's no temptation overtaking you. There's nothing that you're going to deal with that's so strange. There's no temptation overtaking you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful. God is faithful in all your temptations. God is faithful and will provide a means of escape. Understand one thing. Whatever you're dealing with, someone else is dealing with it on some level as well. And also know, you can never say the devil made me do it. The buck stops with us because James 1.14 tells us, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. No temptation overtaking you, but such is common to man. God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able. You've got to get that. But with the temptation, provide a way of escape. Praise God. Satan is not as pow he's powerful, not as powerful as many give him credit for. All right. So, now we cannot say that it was just too much. It's never going to be too much. But when we are not wielding the sword of the Spirit, not putting on the armor of God, we are weakened. And then we give him strength. So what I want to look at, if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, I want to look at the temptation of our Lord and see what we can gather and how he defeated, how he defeated Satan. Now, after the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism, Jesus, by the Spirit, was led out into the wilderness. And understand something. Each time Jesus was tempted, three times, he wielded the sword of the Spirit. Very masterfully, might I, might I add. And he too would be tempted in reverse order to some extent by the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes. Now let's look at the example of Jesus. If you're there, follow with me here. We'll go slow. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days, 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be bred. So the first temptation he comes to Jesus with is the lust of the flesh. Jesus has fasted. And this parallels much of the, of the Exodus account as well. But do understand, the relationship with Christ and Israel here is secondary. And when we looked at Deuteronomy 8.3, is what Jesus is going to quote. Because Satan comes and tempts him because he knows he's hungry. So he tempts him with the lust of the flesh. And Deuteronomy 8.3 states that God allowed Israel to hunger so he might feed them with manna and teach them to trust and to provide for them. That's a very important side note for us. But Jesus was hungry and he's tempted. And look at the response of Jesus in verse 4. And he answered and said, repeat after me, church, it is written. Repeat that. It is written. Jesus repeats all three times. It is written. 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Natural food, spiritual food. Jesus is making the distinction. Now, the significance is here that Satan will exploit your weakness. He will do that, so that's important for us to know. It's not as if there are some rules in war that you have to adhere to. Supposed to anyway. Satan doesn't. Satan plays dirty. He doesn't play by the book. Verse 5. Then the devil took him up to the holy city to set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Number one, he misquotes the scripture right there. But the second temptation, the devil tempts Jesus with the pride of life. And as he did with Eve in the garden with the ego, surely you will be like God. He's going here for the pride of life. And Jesus Christ replies with another verse from Israel's wilderness, Deuteronomy 6.16. And notice that Satan misquotes and notice that he is a counterfeit. He's now saying it is written as well. And he doesn't get it right because he's the father of lies. Jesus wielding the sword with the spirit of God's authority. This is the spiritual word of God. This is not any normal word. Let's look at the third temptation, which we'll see is the lust of the eyes. Now understand Christ in his humanity really hungered. He really wept. He slept. Jesus here is being tempted. Make no mistake, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. There are many in this world that have fallen down and worship the Lord. And Jesus answered. He said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written. Away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall work, worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Now we could do an exposition all day with this. Notice, he is God's devil. Satan will account and does account to God. Worship the Lord your God, him only. And the significance here is some Bible, taters, Bible commentators will make this connection with the Rima word. Notice the specific application Jesus is speaking in each situation. It's if Jesus has got a sword to fit that situation. And so it ought to be with us as well over time. Over time, we know the word where we can speak the word against his schemes. But look at verse 11. Then the devil left him. And behold... Angels came and ministered to Jesus. The devil left them. Three strikes, he was out. Understand something here. We know in James 4, 7, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. He'll come back, but he'll flee. Part of submitting yourself to God is this mentality of it is written. Understanding it is written. Understanding it's superior. Understanding this is the inspired word of God. Now we need to know the God, the word of God. We need to 
see each situation. And the word enables us to be loose from Satan's deception. But most importantly, we see the example of Christ here. Follow the example of Christ. Jesus had a very high view of Scripture. Jesus was extremely biblical. He wielded the sword of the Spirit throughout his life here on earth in teaching. And whenever he was dealing with Satan, it is written. Whenever he was dealing with the Pharisees, he spoke to them out of the Scriptures. Whenever he was dealing with his disciples, he spoke to them out of the Scriptures. And this mentality of it is written is something that we too can incorporate into our lives. If we really believe it is written, then we will be stronger to wield off the attacks and schemes and fiery dots of Satan. Now we are to follow our Lord's example. But yet it's so amazing how even we, take heed lest you unless you think you stand. Even we can be deceived. But most often when we are deceived, it's because we are deficient in some point of the armor and very often not wielding the sword of the Spirit. You know, there are ways that you keep, people keep swords sharp. You ever hear the term sharpen your sword and you can learn how to do it? But you don't understand. Our, our sword never needs to be sharp. Our sword sharpens us, and we need to be in it to be sharpened. Very, very important. So, the Word tells us things that are correct. For example, when it's just too much, when you feel like, I can't deal with it, the temptation, the Word tells us, no, God will provide a way of escape. And the Word tells us also proactively, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against our soul. To flee certain things. So the word is sufficient also to bring forth enlightenment as well. The word of God, the sword of the spirit, is sufficient for all matters of life. But particularly when we're speaking about temptation, I want to go in three areas. Three ways that this word is important. Now... Three things we must do to defeat the schemes of the devil on a daily basis when it comes to the sword of the Spirit. Number one, Psalm 119.11. The psalmist says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. Got to know the word. Simply knowing the word of God is a great defensive and offensive tactic as the sword of the Spirit has both elements. The word enables God's people to resist Satan's deception. Psalm 119.97 Oh, how I love your, your law. I meditate on it all day. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies. The word of God makes you wise. The word of God makes you wiser than Satan. Now the word of God as well gives you a wisdom and stability when Satan and evil come Towards you, which they will. Psalm 1 man, let's talk about Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. 
meditating, meditating on the word. And here's the stability. When you do that, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. I love that song. So the word of God, you need to know it. It'll make you wise and bring forth stability. Secondly, you need to know how to handle this sword as well. We must not only know, but know how to handle. For example, we must rightly know how to divide the word of truth. 1 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And the authorized version will tell you, study to show yourself approved. So you may know how to use this sword in a particular situation when he comes against you. And with life for that matter. When we do not handle the word correctly, we are not fighting correctly. Now, also with the word, being able to handle it, you also have this wisdom to decipher. You can decipher truth. You can decipher lies and fight in that manner as well to mitigate Satan's confusion and his deception. You understand that the word is effective. The word is greater than his schemes and his fiery darts and certainly his temptations. It is the sword of the spirit. Have you ever seen people that collect swords? They'll put them in a den. They'll put them somewhere and the swords are hanging on the wall. That's useless for you, Christian. You know, for me, I got to study. I got a whole bunch of Bibles downstairs. And if they're just going to sit on the shelf, that's a waste of time. They'll become collector's editions. Is your Bible sitting on your coffee table? Is it have a coffee cup stain on it? If that's the case, you are not using the sword of the Spirit. You're not preparing your ammunition, so to say. Okay, and lastly, we can use the word in an offensive way. How so? A proactive measure by praying. By praying the word of God. <clears throat> now, Paul's going to introduce prayer in the spiritual warfare in verses 18 to 20, which God willing will get to in the future. But one of the ways you mitigate the schemes and you you push back evil from the devil is praying for the empowerment of the gospel, which we did in our prayer. Praying always with all prayer and supplication, Ephesians 6, 18 to 20. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Pray one for another. And for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for I am an ambassador in chains, that I may speak it boldly. So certainly we can pray one for another that we would be strong in a time of attack, in the time of temptation. Pray one for another. And pray one for another that the gospel would go forth, bring utterance to destroy the powers of darkness, which will happen someday. But a great prayer to pray proactively against Satan's fiery dart of temptation is found in what's called the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 
9 to 13. The disciples asked Jesus how we ought to pray. Jesus answered, In this manner therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. There's much in there we could expound. But just a couple of things. God is going to use our prayer for his kingdom to come. And when his kingdom comes, the kingdom of darkness leaves. So that's one of the things here. But it also says in a proactive way, when we get up in the morning, Lord, I started doing this. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Brethren, there will be situations inevitably we, we are in the battle. We are fighting almost a spiritual hand-to-hand combat. But it's also wise for us to pray proactively, Lord, let's avoid any evil come against us. Now understand something. Satan will attack you. He will attack God's word, and he cannot defeat God's word. He cannot defeat you as well. He can knock you out for that standing eight count. Satan, very often, I say it to myself, some of you understand the boxing analogy, some of you don't. Uh, he's kind of like a sparring partner for us. God is, he's God's devil. But one of the things that he will never defeat God's truth, that's why he will try to twist it. That's why he'll try to pervert it. He cannot defeat it just as Voltaire thought he was going to destroy the word of God. I think Satan now knows he can't. That's what I think. Because God's word is greater than Satan. God's word is eternal word. And Isaiah 40, 7 to 8, speaks of this. From the eternal God who breathed and gave us his word, this eternal word. The grass withers and the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So as we conclude in closing the armor of God, understand that Jesus Christ is the picture of the armor. He's the truth. He is our righteousness. He is our peace. He has given us faith. He protects our minds. He is our all in all. It is in Christ we live, move, and have our existence. We see the picture of Christ in the Old Testament. You can see the picture of him in the New, in terms of being the Word of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ daily. Make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for Satan. Make no provision for this world wicked system. The person and work of Jesus Christ, as we sang in our second song, the person and work of Jesus Christ has enabled us to be saved, salvation. To be transferred out of darkness into light to be saved from the wrath of God. 
That's what the person and work of Christ has done on our behalf. And because of what Christ has done by grace through faith, we now have a living, abiding relationship. I like what we sung, Jesus, friend of sinners. When you read the book of Ephesians, we have that before and after motif. We are children of the Most High God. We are the bride of Christ. And if that's something that you're inquisitive about and you don't understand that, and you've heard about Jesus, you don't dislike Jesus, but you don't understand this living, abiding relationship that comes in the power of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus Christ gives eternal life. He comes to bring abundant life. And those in Christ will have eternal, abundant life. But the abundant life starts now. It starts here on this side of eternity. If you're not familiar with this side of Jesus, if you will, come please see me after service and we'll pray. And we'll talk a little more. Okay? I'm going to conclude with a prayer. And then I will ask, in light of what you read, you will sing the truths, and some of these are the direct word of God. Sing them from your heart. Father God, as we come before you, we thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. And Lord, I know you are sanctifying us daily by your truth. I know, Lord, that the spirit of truth dwells in your people. And I praise you for that, Lord. And Father, may we embrace this truth going into a new year. More judiciously, Lord. More fervently. May we really, all the things that may have stopped us, Lord, from following the Bible plans and following coming out, Lord, I would pray. Give your people, Lord, an empowerment to want to know the truth more and to use this sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And may they know their victory. May they know their Lord. And may they fight daily to win, as they have win, won already in Christ. Christ is victorious. Praise the victorious King of kings, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.